On this episode of Life Leadership and the Pursuit of Greatness, we spend time with former head coach and athletic director of Cornell College, Steve Miller, and discuss the concept of servant leadership. Coach does a great job of breaking down the difference between authoritarian and authentic leadership and how to lead your team without being that dictator. We learned a lot today, and we know you will too. Here we go. All right, welcome back to another episode of Life Leadership and the Pursuit of Greatness. Uh, you are hosted here by Tim Lovell and Dwayne Mathis. We are honored to have former head coach AD Steve Miller on the podcast from Cornell College. Uh, coach is living in Mount Vernon and soon to be uh, be moving on, but we won't talk about that at this point. Uh, but Coach Miller is kind enough to join us and talk today on the important subject of servant, servant leadership. Um, coach has been a head coach. He's been an athletic director, his professor, successful husband, father, grandfather. Um, he's got quite a legacy, and we've got a surprise for you guys at the end of this podcast that I think Coach is going to really like as well. Um, but before we get going, Coach Miller, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. I'm great. I'm doing great, Tim. Good to see both of you guys. Thanks for taking time. Uh, just a brief intro from my perspective. I'm, I'm uh, deeply honored that you're taking time to speak with us on this topic, Coach. Uh, you've obviously had uh, an enormous impact on me, um, but I, I can't tell you, uh, I can't wait to hear your perspective on things. Cornell football, quite honestly, uh, shaped me uh, into the person that I am, the coach that I wanted to be, and that's a tribute to you. And I know there are a lot of people who feel that way, and uh, so uh, this is an exciting, exciting podcast for us. Um, so when when you and I talked last week, Coach, you, you mentioned that the most unique and maybe most important aspect of leadership was that of servant leadership. Um, so c- can you break that component down, uh, what that looks like, what it feels like, uh, how you incorporate it? Well, I'll start by by uh, sharing how that formed kind of the basis of the kind of leader I wanted to be. And, uh, and it really was, it was based on a... Uh, verse out of the Bible from uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, that says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And I thought that formed a basis for really kind of what I wanted to do. And so then I, I tried to apply that to different aspects of being a leader. And, and try to make that observation in the actions of other leaders. And it kind of, for me, and then kind of broke down into two categories. Uh, what I would consider to be kind of qualities of a servant leader and the impact they have on people and the qualities of authoritarian leaders and the impact they have. And I chose to go the route of the fundamentals of a servant leader. And, you know, there's a lot of ways leaders can have great impact and great influence on people. And a totalitarian leader or authoritarian leader, a lot of times you're put into a position of leadership, not by your choice, but if you're uh, in the military or you are a dictator or you achieve that kind of control over people, you control and lead, and, and there's been a lot throughout history that have had what might be viewed as uh, 
some success. They certainly have had great influence on masses of people. And you can, you can do that if you're in a position for those reasons and, and the qualities or the, the control or the leadership that, that is exerted by authoritarian leader is usually based on things that are quite different than what I thought was important in leadership. And that would be things like, uh, you know, fear and intimidation, uh, no compromise, you know, one way to do things, and that's the only way, uh, making demands and just having people react. And a lot of times that can get results. And so you can't say that style is not effective and the results are not there. There's examples, a lot of that being there. I didn't particularly like that because I, I've always felt that your, your uh, strength as a leader and your impact as a leader is based on uh, the support of the group you're trying to lead and the uh, feeling of the group that you're trying to lead. And I just didn't see being able to get that by being uh, totally in charge, totally in control, controlling every aspect of things and not having time for any other input from things. So, so to me, the servant leader is the one who leads by actually being a servant of those he's leading in ways of uh, communicating and uh, learning from and more, more inspiring those people and working with those people, uh, learning from those people being concerned about their welfare and working toward a common goal. And that was a big distinction. And, you know, in, in life and in athletics, both, there are both types of leaders. You can, you see them, you know, really wherever you look, whether it's in business, politics, or coaching and teaching. And it's interesting to kind of observe then the way, for me, the way those leaders try to impact the result that they're trying to get. Coach Miller, uh, you know, I'm very, you know, Coach Lovell and I talked about how servant leadership seems to be like this kind of, you know, big, big catchphrase right now amongst, uh, you know, people in education as well as coaches. But uh, I was more curious to know how your purpose as a coach tied into servant leadership and then following up on that is how have you seen servant leadership really change, you know, throughout your, your coaching career? So if, if you could kind of touch on those, well, I'd really appreciate it. You know, there's no question it's changed because when I was playing, uh, I mean, the, the people that I kind of took my cues from as how do I want to shape my values as a coach was kind of a, a wide range of of personalities. I mean, my high school coach, which Tim, you're familiar with, Les Hippel at Marion, a very quiet man, but a strict disciplinarian, a firm leader, and kind of a no-nonsense guy. In fact, the, the kids were almost afraid to have a conversation with him. He had that kind of grip on things. I didn't because, I don't know, I was a track guy in high school, and he and I drove to a lot of meets together, and we talked quite a bit. And, I had a lot of success in his program in football and basketball and baseball as well as track. So I saw him in a different way. But anyway, he was that type of guy. But the other, the other significant 
coaches in the country. When you, I was 22 when I started coaching. I looked around, who am I going to learn from? Well, uh, I think those coaches over the 20 or 30 years that I first started reading and, and studying and trying to learn from them, they evolved through the years as well, and they changed. And I think the way that kind of gets you the point uh, that you made and that, that I'll get to in a second, and that is uh, as athletics were being conducted in the 50s and 60s, there weren't as many of the kid programs, youth sports programs as there are today. So most of the uh, contact with coaches came in a school program and the university level program and so on. And so you had coaches who were role models for me, like Bear Bryant and Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler and Al McGuire and people like that. In my first 10 years of coaching, I was looking at these greatly successful guys and trying to get ideas as to how did this work? Well, they were hardcore. They were hard nose. I mean, if you read about Bear Bryant taking 130 guys to College Station, Texas, and bringing 46 back to the first day of practice, there wasn't a lot of negotiation there. I don't know if he had any team councils, you know, out there in the desert. He pretty well ran things. And I remember one of his quotes that I remember sticking uh, in my head early, and and Baron Bremner repeated this to me once when I was really young at Cornell. And that was kind of once a bum, always a bum. Get rid of the guy. And that's kind of how he did things. Well, I know over the years he evolved into being a little more uh, tolerant and uh, building a, a culture or having a culture a lot like what Coach Heller described in your podcast a week ago. I mean, I think we've come a long ways from those kind of coaches. And I was always admired. I always kind of wondered at how could these guys be so hard and so tough on, on their athletes and have any kind of allegiance and any kind of esprit de corps being built with that kind of authoritarian dominance is kind of what they exerted. And I think over the years that changed. And one of the, I think one of the things that changed for a lot of coaches and you guys coaching today, I've experienced that and I've kind of observed it over 40 years is that the, the rise of youth sports programs and the involvement of kids away from their uh, school programs and the involvement then of their parents in every way. And I think we had parents that were, you know, uh, interested in tents and close to the programs when I was both playing and and growing up. But I don't think they were anywhere near the involvement and support that I see parents giving in the last 20 years. As a result, you know, what what happened with Coach Hipple at Marion is that, you know, over he was – you know, probably into his 16th or 17th year. And the parents were just kind of tired of his control of everything. And as they got more involved, why then he had to change. Well, he was stubborn in his own right. You know, he wasn't going to change greatly either. And so, uh, because he was just a guy that was, these these are the rules. If you want to be an athlete, this is what it takes to be an athlete. And you will have no problem. And we had no problem with kids that that just bought into that. But in the 50s and 60s and in the 30, 40, 50 years since, a lot of kids don't buy into that same kind of commitment. And then he had parents that didn't. And pretty soon 
you know, his, his uh, position was reduced, reduced. And eventually he was, he was out of coaching. And then I think as the years progressed and, and parents put more and more into their kids' developmental programs, they became more and more uh, connected to the uh, coaches. They didn't have any reluctance about being connected with the coaches. And so they would step forward and let you know their opinion, you know, anytime. As a result, I think your style of leadership, if it didn't change, you were not going to be in there all that long. And I think that's kind of uh, what happened in the latter years of Coach Hipple's career. And you weren't going to be that successful uh, if you didn't have a style of leadership that embraced some communication with your athletes and a culture that was kind of built on a whole different foundation than I think what some of the uh, you know team cultures were built on in the 40s, 50s, and uh, you know through the 60s. And so as I got into coaching and evolved and looked at different coaches, I remember. When I was up at Carroll College in Wisconsin, Al, Mar- Al McGuire was a coach at Marquette in basketball, and he really successful. Had been to the Final Four, won at one time, and you know his teams were about, you know, probably ninety five percent African American players. And I remember seeing a uh, biography they had done on him on TV in the in the uh, TV stations in uh, Milwaukee, and they had mic'd him in the locker room and Mike team in the huddle of teams. And he just would berate these black players unmercifully with name calling or whatever you might want to do. And the, and the players loved him, you know, and they accepted that. And it was one of the key things I think in this servant leadership model that, that is critical. And that is he knew that, or those players knew that he cared for them more than anything else. And, as long as there's that understanding among a leader and his group, his team or classroom or whatever it is, as long as the understanding is there that you've got your player's interest first and foremost in your mind, that's kind of what Coach Heller was saying. You know, the wins and losses are important. Obviously, he's in a position where it's real important in terms of job security, but in terms of developing young men, the wins and losses are just kind of secondary. And what he's striving for, and I think what most leaders uh, who are what I would consider to be servant leader types are striving for is the growth of a young man, the growth of a young woman athlete, the growth of a person so they understand those things. And it's, it really allows for a great relationship to develop and relationships that are completely different than what you would have if you were a Bear Bryant type of leader from 1960, you know, or you were an authoritarian leader that had all the answers and were, were not going to listen to anybody. And so the, the fundamentals of what real leadership is to me is a lot closer to that of the servant leader personality than it is the real authoritarian uh, leader. So coach, um, you've uh, been on many different hats or you've worn many different hats coaching. Um, talk about how your coaching of different sports really kind of helped shape your philosophy and mold some of the things that you did to create that leadership model. Well, 
it's interesting that uh, coaching the different sports uh, kind of creates for you, or did for me in those days, in like from 67 to uh, 85, uh, it created for you a different relationship with your players uh, or your athletes because in swimming, it was pretty much a one-on-one thing. And so you tried, you tried to talk to the team as a group, but the kids are in the water on their own, you know, and, and so you've got to be able to understand each type of, of uh, student athlete and what's important to them and what's driving them to do what, you know, they want to do. And then you've got, you know, football and basketball are uh, a little different in that they're team sports that rely totally on teamwork and striving among the entire group to achieve a goal more than individual goals in golf and swimming and track, you know, it's kind of individual performance that it's kind of scored collectively. And so your team result is the result of the scoring basketball and football are entirely different. You know, the result is if your team isn't playing together, you're not going to come close to the result that uh, you uh, would want to have and, and that your players would want to have. And so, you know, I heard, Early in my career, I heard a coach in Illinois who's a hugely successful high school coach, Homewood Flossmore somewhere in Chicago, speaking at a clinic. And he said, well, the greatest way to build morale among your players is that they all take a lot of crap together. And so then he, he de- uh, detailed some of the drills that he did where he says, you know, I don't care if they hate me, but I want them all to hate me together. And so he would do these you know, conditioning drills or whatever it was that he said, the players got so angry with me for doing those things. It bonded them together so closely. Well, I've never totally ascribed to that. Uh, although Tim, you might have a different view of, of that from some of the drills we did at Cornell, but, uh, but that was one thing. I mean, building uh, unity among a group of people can be done in a lot of ways. That was just one thing. I'm sure he had a lot of other things he did other than that. But that was one thing that he had done. And the point was, everybody is doing it together. And I think in team stuff, in team sports, that's really critical, that there are no exceptions made. I mean, you're all going through the same thing, and it builds it that way. In an individual sport, you don't have the uh, arena to do a lot of those things. And so you've got to try to build it through the individuals all striving together, and then you try to motivate them individually. And so... You know, like in swimming, I, I had I did a lot of things where, you know, we recorded it. I didn't have 20 managers, but we recorded a lot of stuff and, and repeats that kids were doing in the pool time-wise, and we compare that week after week after week. And then we had some rewards for kids that hit their times and hit their repetitions and all that kind of stuff. And so it was a team thing. They were all doing it, but they all had to do it individually, whereas I think Football and basketball, you can do some things as a uh, as a team that bond and build that that as a team, and so your the things you do as a leader there can be kind of different in each situation. Well, coach, I you know it's funny you, uh, I I referenced your exact comment about how um, uncomfortable moments can bond the team together. I remember having that you having that same conversation with our team um, in the fall camp. And it was 
you know, none of this is going to be easy. Um, and you might not, you know, you might not be very happy with us as a football staff, but everything we're doing is for the greater good because we know that together, um, you guys will be stronger than if you if you try to do this on your own. And understanding the 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 strong difference between trying to do something as difficult as football on your own and the benefit of leaning into your teammates uh, to get through a struggling moment is going to ultimately make you better. And I think you really did a, a heck of a job selling that concept to our teams. When oftentimes we went into a concept or a, a contest on a Saturday and we were outmanned, outgunned, oversized, or overmatched. Uh, but we came out ahead. Yeah, well, we had great leadership uh, among the teams that I was fortunate enough to work with at Cornell. Uh, among the players, I think. There were, and the interesting thing about leadership uh, to me uh, is the different qualities that it takes uh, or the different qualities that are exhibited by leaders. And uh, you can... You've probably listed off eight or 10 of them in these podcasts over the time that you started till now. Uh, one of them, to me, that I've always observed is, and I don't know what it's called. I just call there's an it quality about leaders. And I think you recognize that probably in your team. And it isn't always the most talented kid, or it isn't always the strongest kid. And it isn't always the kid that uh, speaks up all the time, you know, but for some reason, and you can probably look back to your own grade school experiences and know that who was it in our class that when that person said something, everybody paid attention. Whether they said it very often or not really didn't matter. But whenever they said something, you knew it was important to listen and do what they're doing. Or whenever they did something, you knew this was the thing to do. And so you followed that person. And it was in it was in groups of people where there were no identified leaders or no established leaders, but some kid or more than one was always kind of the kid that had that quality, and people just tended to gravitate and follow that person. And I remember as a player at Cornell, we had captains every year, and they did certain things that you like captains to do. But I knew who the guys on our team was who were going to be the leaders, and and they didn't say much because they were not the captains. They were not, I don't know whether at that time our captains were elected uh, or appointed by the coaches. But all I know is the guys that made a difference when we needed it were those that had this quality and they just, everybody gravitated to them because they had that leadership ability and they were smart and they were, you know, tough and they were courageous and, and, you know, they were supportive and they, but even if they didn't exhibit those qualities, when the time came to stand up, they stood up and kids followed them and they, uh, you know, they went that direction. And the thing about our teams at Cornell, Tim, is I think we had more than one of those guys on nearly all of the teams. There were a lot of guys that would do that. And I, uh, Deanne Rexrode is writing an article on leadership in the Cornell Report this summer. And she asked me to, to uh, you know, write a, a few things up about that and incidents of, of where I observed this leadership exerting itself. And I don't know if you remember this, but one of the things we did, Cornell, as a condition, was we'd, we'd run the length of the field down and back. And I don't know if we did this with you, but if we didn't, I should have, uh, <laughs> is that when you'd blow the whistle, you had to go down in a three-point stance. You blow it again, you had to keep running again. You blow it again, you had to go back down in a stance, which 
Sounds like good. I get to rest, except you're tucked up, plopping a ball, and you can't get any air in your lungs anyway. But you go down and back, and and it seemed like every time we did this, you know, there were guys that had a lot of trouble with this drill. Maybe big guys like Dwayne might have struggled with it a little bit more than you did. Ouch! There would always there would always be kids who would be, would be the last ones in, and we'd have three fourths of the team finished, and there'd still be ten or twelve guys out there, eighty yards away from the finish line. And it seemed like I, almost every day there would be people who had finished would go out to where these guys who had not finished were located, and run in with them and finish in with them. So there was this support for these guys who were at the tail end of the drill by the people who had, you know, it had been an easier drill for them. They were lighter, quicker, whatever, better shape, you know, maybe all three. But they were willing to go out there and bring those in. And I think it was those kind of things that individuals did that created this understanding or this togetherness, this unity uh, that was a real strength. So it became a real moral strength of our teams that when things were tough, they just knew everybody was in this together and everybody had each other's back. And so we were going to get out of it the very best result we were capable of because there was really no dead weight. I mean, everybody was on the same page in that regard. And those kind of things were built up through incidents, I think, like that, you know, that team's experience. Well, uh, Coach, you'll have to check, go back and check out our, our podcast with, with Coach Apple because he, he testifies that I was pretty fast. I'm just, uh, you know, just want to throw that out there. Um, yeah. But... Well, check the watch, Dwayne. Check the watch. <laughs> All right. Duly noted. But, uh, you know, some of the things that we, we, we hear a lot these days are, you know, just kids are different. You know, kids are different nowadays compared to 20, 30 years ago. So does servant leadership have the same meaning today as it did when you got into coaching or really has it not changed at all? I think it's stronger today, really. I don't think it was as big a part of the conversation 40 years ago as it is today, because for some of the reasons I'd mentioned earlier, this, this, the times were different, but the kids weren't really that much different, you know we had kids that made the choice not to play and that was fine. We had kids that made the choice to play and try to bend the rules. And most of the time they didn't continue. And the difference was, I think the times enabled coaches or leaders, probably even teachers in a classroom to deal with kids differently than is probably acceptable today. And I think probably in the forties and fifties and sixties, I mean, the parents sent their kids to school and they expected a lot of discipline to come from the kids' experience at school. I don't know how many times I've heard kids say, well, you know, whatever the teacher said, you pay attention because that's the rule. Don't come home crying to me. Or whatever the coach decides, that's his decision and it's based on your reason, so don't come home crying to me. And I think over the last 25 years probably, uh, that that – atmosphere is is just different and i equate a lot of that back to this youth sports phenomenon that has blown up over the last 30 years but now along with that has come a lot more of an understanding i think on the part of coaches and teachers and uh parents that there's a lot more to this other than just i'm going to tell you what to do and you do it you know there's a lot more to effective leadership 
and there's been a lot more written, a lot more studied, a lot more understanding about what makes an effective leader today than what I even had available to read 45 years ago. So that has broadened the understanding of coaches like yourselves and Coach Heller and Jared Collum and, you know, Mark McDermott and Pete Cavanaugh and all these guys that I, you know, had at Cornell that have gone into coaching. If they have taken something from our program that they experienced and then that's become a part of what they like to do today, obviously that makes me feel really proud and really good. But it is a, it is important to to do the things in the time that you're living that is workable, is best, and is the best interest of your kids. And I think this whole concept then has expanded, you know, that way. So it's, it's you know, uh, it's made the servant leadership model, I think, a much more important part of teaching and coaching uh, and leadership at most levels, most areas today than it, than it probably was 60 years ago or 50 years ago. So would it be safe to say that in thinking that really the kids haven't changed, but maybe so the parents have changed because I think, so. I, I think you know, kids, you know, you start to think about, it, and I, I go back to this a lot then kids are not born with the attitudes they have when they're 18. They're born as kind of an unshapen, unmolded little body. So everything they become is going to be stuff they learn from somebody, either observed or taught along the way. So a kid develops into a uh, young woman or a young man at age 17. That's a product of this 17 years. It's not something that one coach is going to you know, impact or shape the first time you come in contact with that person. So if times have changed and we've gotten away from this authoritarian type of, you know, my way or the highway leadership, and now we're into a more servant-based type of leadership where there's a lot more components of what service-based leadership is than there is totalitarian authoritarian type of leadership. And that's a much healthier thing for everybody, I think. And it's, it's been great for coaches and it's been great for uh, teachers to understand that. And maybe coaches are one of the last group to accept it. And maybe they were the leaders, you know, in accepting it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter because I, I just personally feel this is the basis upon which you can get a program of 35 kids or 75 kids or whatever it is, all rallying around the same goal and all willing to fight to the death, you know, until the last second, you know, for each other. And you can get it that way. Uh, you can build that feeling much, much stronger and much uh, uh, better, I think, through this leadership style. When we come back from break, we're going to talk with uh, Coach Miller about some specific things that he did in his program, uh, a couple things that we want to get his thoughts on before we call today. Uh, we'll be right back after this message. All right, Coach, uh, you've been shaped. Obviously, you mentioned several coaches uh, previously, Les Hipple, um, and you and I spoke about a coach, Paul Maskey, who was very instrumental in, in your career as a young coach, as an athlete uh, during your time at Cornell. I was wondering if you could you could speak to his impact on you uh, in developing your philosophy and how you grew. 
Well, interesting thing about Paul Maskey was that he was the most positive guy I think that I ever played for or worked with. And that was the biggest thing is that we had, he had some great teams from 1959 to 1972 when, when uh, I left Cornell after coaching there six years. And they were always good shooters. And we didn't have the three-point line. But he would go out and uh, do things in practice that did nothing but build up your confidence as a shooter. Uh, and so we'd go out in games and we would just shoot the lights out of it. And I think we did have good shooters. But we had probably as much confidence in our ability as shooters, even the bad shooters like me, that we didn't hesitate. And his encouragement was, hey, if you're open, you've got an open shot, take it. You're a good shooter. You'll knock it down. And we would spend 50% of our time or more at practice doing nothing but shooting and building that confidence and that repetition. And so there were two things that I took from him in coaching. One is that he was always really well prepared and he was always so knowledgeable about what he was trying to teach. He didn't try to teach stuff that he didn't know a lot about. So we only did three or four different things. But he was detailed and knowledgeable and, you would say, an expert on those things. And I think that's a key thing in leadership is that you need to be really knowledgeable. You need to be an authority. You need to understand and learn as much as you can to be a, a better student and a, a more thorough person so you're always prepared and understand. So Paul was that way, and he then he built this great confidence in his players because he showed so much more confidence in them. And I would talk to other coaches around the league when I was his assistant. They'd get me to uh, tell them what we did in practice, and I would tell them. And they thought I was lying to them because there's nobody does that in practice. You No way you could win if you're doing that kind of stuff in practice. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, I wouldn't copy this if I were you because it doesn't make any sense. But that's, that's pretty much, you know, what he did, and that was – a key part of uh, philosophy. So we had fun at practice. He focused on the things that he thought were the most important. And then his own, his personal preparation is he was just really knowledgeable and really well prepared. Well, coach, you, you uh, had a tremendous ability to, to build that belief into the teams that I was around. And I know talking to other players who, who uh, played for you and before and after my time at Cornell, uh, and it was a palpable belief uh, that was that was shown throughout uh, when we played. And talk about talk about some of the things that you did. I know one thing that you did in particular that really helped me as a player was the was the personal letter that you took time to write. And I know you did that uh, throughout your career for many many different athletes. But um, speaking as an individual, that was one thing that. Um, I, I still have all the notes you've written to me, Coach, to be honest with you, and I'm sure many guys do. Um, but but that was really powerful. Talk talk about how you came to that. Well, I don't know how I came to it because whenever I would receive one, to me that was the most meaningful thing I could have received. More than a phone call, and we didn't have text back in those days. Uh, we barely had cars when I first started, but uh, – when I would get something that somebody had written down, one, I had it forever. I could reread it if I needed to over and over again or I wanted to. And you knew that that person had put some thought into doing it because they sat down and took the time to write it out. And so I just thought 
if you want someone to really understand a point, a message, a feeling, whatever you're trying to express, write it down and give it to them. Don't make it a mass announcement, you know, or don't make it a trivial acknowledgement. Uh, and so I tried to do that when I thought it was important that, you know, we had the same understanding or I was being understood in the way I wanted to be understood. And a lot of times I thought it was important for kids to know that I was concerned about them in whatever way this might have related to enough to take down or to, enough to sit down and take time to write, you know, to that person individually. And I did that a lot. I mean, I, I moved only three times when I was coaching. And I think I told you earlier, one of the difficult things was every time I left a program, I would sit down and write a letter to each kid that was coming back in that program that I left. Well, you know, in Morningside, that was about 70 guys, you know, at Carroll, it was like 110. And, uh, but I thought it was important to make a connection, even at that exit time that, uh, you know, would uh, clearly kind of state, you know, what you were thinking, what you were doing, why, and something about that person individually as well. I just think it's a real powerful thing. And I hope people haven't totally forgotten about the impact of that because it is so easy to email. It's so easy to text. It is so easy to emoji. I don't think I've ever used an emoji in my life. Uh, didn't you know what it was until two years ago. <laughs> and that was always a part of kind of what I did. I think it's a real important uh, uh, practice for people to, to uh, incorporate. Well, I know that's something that I've done in my program where it's just that and it doesn't have to be something uh, super long. You know, we use little postcards uh, in our program that just whether it be congratulating them on something that they've done in another sport or an activity or just that you see them working hard in the weight room kind of deal. And I think that uh, can be pretty impactful. Yeah, well, no question it is. And uh, I even... Uh use that around the house now and then to keep my wife motivated. So it has a lot of carryover. Coach, what are some of the other things that, that you, you felt were important to, to dive into uh, with you, with the people that you worked with uh, from assistants or players to, to help further that servant leadership notion? Well, you know, I think one thing I came across, you might've seen this on Facebook that was posted uh, a few days ago by uh, Tim DeLong, uh, who's a friend of mine from Des Moines. And it was a quote from uh, President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower from World War II about leadership. And, and I think I thought it was really good because it said leadership consists of nothing but taking responsibility for everything that goes wrong and giving subordinates credit for everything that goes right. And, you know, I think that says a lot about the different styles of leadership. And I can't think of anything more difficult than being a, a, a commander or a general or admiral, you know, in wartime and how difficult that must be. But I think the, uh, the humility to accept criticism and the uh, willingness to learn from your staff or learn from your players and take advice from others and then having the humility to put that into effect is a real key important uh, 
quality and leadership. And and I don't know if you guys saw the uh, Sunday morning show uh, on CBS this Sunday. It had it had three people on there: uh, General McChrystal, uh, Doctor Wheeler, who is a health uh, services uh, leader, and Father Joseph McShane from Fordham University. Three different kinds of people: warrior, you know, a doctor and a uh, spiritual leader. And they all talked about the fundamentals of leadership and what was important in it and the things they took from it. And, you know, one of the things that McChrystal talked about is you had to stand up. And when I mentioned, uh, you know, the different players and different things that occurred during practices or during games where people would stand up or you as a leader had to stand up and take charge of the moment, because if you didn't, who else, you know, you're the guy, you're on, you're on stage. And so you've got to be the one to, to stand up and uh, set the example. And I think that was, you know, that was a real important quality of, of leadership is for people to be willing to stand up and assume that, you know, leadership role. And then when you combine that with Eisenhower's statement, not put the blame for failure on, on everybody else, accept your responsibility in it, and then put the uh, credit for success where it really belongs, and that's with your players, your staff, and, and everybody else. And so it takes a degree of humility to be able to do that, but it's an important quality for a leader to have. And I think that kind of circles back to the uh, servant leadership, um, you know, kind of fundamentals that we talked about earlier. Coach, uh, I know that all the former Rams who are listening right now um, and, and uh, you know, other athletes that you coached maybe at other colleges maybe many years ago, but would love to hear you reflect on some of your fond memories of coaching. You know, it doesn't have to be 55, 60 of them, yeah. but, you know, a couple that stand out to you. I know on Facebook we had the the 92 team and they showed the video and that, that you and I talked about how special that was and, you know, what what are some of the most fond memories you have of coaching? Well, here's one for you, Tim. The '95 team that we played in the Unidome. Yeah. Uh, now here's a here's a leadership model for you. You know, remember it snowed about eight inches uh, Friday night, and so we we had no field and we had no turf at that time. So we had just a grass field that was now covered with snow. And we ended up playing that game in the Unidome the next day because we couldn't get our field cleared. And I think the leadership that we showed in not getting our field cleared was a real <laughs> factor in playing that game in the Unidome. That was a big difference. We had a great, we had a great day the next day in the Unidome and uh, uh, coach Sternis, who was with us at the time, I think was very helpful with getting our team ready to play that day in the Unidome because we'd never been indoors before. And I doubt that Rippet had ever been indoors before I remember him telling me when their kicker was out there doing 50 yard field goals for 35 minutes before the game started, you know, he said, well, his leg won't be worth a darn once the game gets underway and, and you get out there too long and you get dehydrated way early. And the old Thurn had a, a couple cards up his sleeve that he knew how to play in there. And that was a big thing, but that was one of that, the 92 team and the, and the uh, Cohen Beloit games that year, the 95 team, and the game with uh, Co that year, and then Rippin 
uh, up in the Unidome were, were huge things. And, you know, another thing that I, you know, you have flashbacks of different plays and different things that stick in your mind. And one of the things that I have had flash through my head a lot is that we, I didn't even know who we were playing. We had a kid named Jeff Schottke, and I don't know if he was there when you were there. Yes, but same we age. We were playing somebody that we were well ahead of, and it was late in the fourth quarter, and he caught a pass in the back of the end zone. And, of course, the sideline went nuts because he probably played six plays the entire year. I mean, and he went to practice and worked as hard as anybody all the time. He just loved to be out there and be a part of it. Here he had his touchdown in his arms, and the doggone official ruled that he either juggled it, was out of bounds, or was too close to the line or whatever, and I don't think he was. Uh, but I was a few yards away and couldn't actually see it. But that play was one that just excited our entire team, and it was by a guy who played about half a dozen plays a year because they were all – and that kind of gets back to the thing you were talking about the unity among our squad and among our players. And that was an end. We had a lot of great individual plays, you know, don't get me wrong over the years that were big plays and dramatic plays. And I remember a guy even caught a pass on the one yard, line, intercepted a pass really on the one yard line one time. So we got the ball back instead of getting it back at the 40 yard line where it was thrown, but you know, on fourth down, was that a fourth down? Fourth play? down. Yeah. Something like that. Something like yeah. that happened. But, but he had a teammate who had done that earlier. So I can understand him just, you know, trying to do the right thing because he had seen that behavior model, you know, for him previously. Yeah. Well, that comes down to a coaching issue. I think, you know, just, huh. you know, <laughs> well, that does. And we had a serious staff meeting about that. With the <laughs> oh, I'm going to hear from coach Sands on that one. Yeah, yeah. that was, uh, that was Grinnell my sophomore year. But then I remember Pete Cavanaugh took right off and ran the midline right up to about the 40 yard line. So yeah. it was a wash, you know, well, we were, he, yeah, he bailed you out on that one for sure. <laughs> um, my, my, uh, my good friend, Vince Ellison from uh, Mount Vernon, uh, we recruited his brother Vance. If you remember, yeah. uh, he loves to bring up, uh, my, uh, my intercepting the pass at Beloit and downing it in the end zone. He, that's his, that's his favorite memory uh, of me playing college football on that. Certainly a low light for me, but uh, you know, yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Are there any others that stick out in your mind coach as, 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 as you're thinking? Well, you know, in my uh, coaching career, we won a conference swimming championship one time and we were maybe the third or fourth ranked team going into it. And swimming is a little different than some other sports in that you can pretty well tell where your guys are ranked and what their performance has been and where you're likely to be. So we were going into the meet, uh, probably the third or fourth best team in the league. If you added up the points of everybody on paper and what they were going to do, well, we ended up winning the, the uh, meet. Uh, it was a two-day thing, Friday, Saturday, and me. We ended up winning it. And the interesting thing that happened in that weekend, you know, swimmers shave their legs and shave their arms and shave down to increase your speed net. So we're down at Galesburg, and I go out to get uh, something to eat for our guys the night before the meet. This was like on Thursday night. And, of course, being the sports nutritionist that I am, uh, I went to McDonald's and got cheeseburgers and uh, chocolate cake. What else would you have the night before a big meet? So I bring them home, and every kid had shaved down their entire body, their heads, everything. I mean, they looked like, 
you know, 11 ETs walking around the uh, motel room. And we went out to the uh, uh, qualifying uh, trials the next day and walked onto the deck. And we had these kind of blue warmups. And this was right during the Vietnam War. It was like 1969. So long hair and and protests and all that was kind of the way to go. And so we walk in and we look like a dozen zombies. Everybody, except me, I didn't probably need to, but everybody was totally shaved down. They had their warm-ups on and they had these a dozen bald heads over on the uh, deck of the pool where we were sitting. And I think the meet was over right there because I think the feeling was that this day and time, if these kids want to win this thing that badly, we don't have much of a chance. And and really what happened was we went out in the qualifying heats and had so many points locked up after the first day of qualifying, you know, that unless we, uh, you know, slipped and fell off the starting block or something really ridiculous happened, the meet was pretty much over that first day. And that was one of those experiences that just is, you know, you're never going to forget. But it, was, it wasn't it was me that said, hey, let's go shave down and do this. I'm out buying the wrong kind of food, you know. Somebody in that room said, we're going to do this. And I remember talking to him. We had a reunion last homecoming with uh, a number of those guys about, because I want to know how this thing really happened. Well, they never would say to me who it was that initiated the action. But once it got going, it spread from one kid to the next kid to the fifth kid to the ninth kid. And pretty soon, even the guys that knew they were not going to qualify bought into the thing. And so we walked in there as a really united group and got that result, which was a you know, tremendous upset, you know, for the people in that in that uh, uh, conference and, and the swimming coaches at that time. That was that was a big one. And then uh, one more one in football was when uh, this was, I think, in 91, uh, 90 or 91, we were out at Buena Vista playing on a day that was about 97 degrees and just hotter than blazes. And we only had about 40 kids that made the trip. And uh, they had about 120 on their sideline. And, you know, we were not doing very well at halftime. And we had lost an interior lineman to an injury. We had a defensive back who who uh, said he'd go in and he's played nose guard before. He's played in the line before. He'd go in and play, which he did. And somehow we ended up coming back and winning that game in the second half. But in terms of moments in time, that's one that, you know, I've always kind of looked at as kind of a, a turning point to where I think people believe that, you know, there's not anything that's not really possible. Uh if you just put your mind to it and then the example that was set that day and then the result that we got, and then it was another one of those kind of rocks that were put into the bucket about building this in internal confidence and this internal belief and the strength, the character, the unity, all of those things may be rolled together that probably then surfaced again the next year when we ended up going undefeated in 95, when we came back and, you know, uh, won that game in the Uni Dome and, and years after that. So one play really ended up turning around uh, several years of, of yeah. toughness and, and success I, I for a program. It had an impact on eight or nine years uh, following that particular incident. And so that's important. And then um, 
you know, one other thing that I'd mention, which you, you're aware of, I'm sure, but I just, I'll mention it again. That is kind of like this incident. You never know when something that you say or do is going to have a lasting and a lifelong impact on people. And I'm old enough to know that's true because I've had a lot of people have emailed or written me or told me of, of things that I said, half of which I deny, <laughs> but they don't ever forget it. And they have said, you know, when you said this and, and we were in the hallway out in the, uh, the Cornell Field House, just looking in the door and we were talking and you said this about that. And, you know, I gave him credit for their memory being a lot better than mine, but he says, you know, that really was an insignificant thing. Well, it's like this incident on the football field. That was a significant thing that people, uh, I think, kind of carried with them. But as coaches or as teachers or as leaders, there's nothing you say that's insignificant. Hmm. You might think it's not that impactful or that significant at the time, but believe me, people are hearing it and they are internalizing it and you hope they internalize it in the way you would, you intend it. But so you have to be, that's the role that I think leaders have on people. That's the impact they can have. And it's a awesome responsibility, but it also has, uh, you know, great rewards, you know, down the road, but you, you can't be uh, thinking that, well, that wasn't important because it didn't sound like much because it, to that person, it was important and it did sound like quite a lot. Well, coach, uh, we have a little surprise for you. Uh, we do have some uh, some thoughts from some of your former players we were going to share with you, and I hope that's okay. Um, they uh, Tim was able to reach out to uh, a few of your former players, and uh, they shared some thoughts uh, with, uh, with him that we'd like to share with you to show the impact that you've had on uh, numerous players. Uh, and this is obviously just a small sample of some of those. So uh, we're going to start out with uh, uh, Brent Sands, obviously the defensive coordinator at Solon, coached alongside uh, you at Cornell. Uh, so this is what uh, Coach Sands had to say. Coach Miller was the person that inspired me to get into coaching. Because of him, I gained great confidence in myself and in what I believed I had to offer athletes. I believe the greatest thing he demonstrated to me was that it was okay to show your emotions. He had a soft side to him showed his heart, and how much he truly cared about you as a person. For someone that had been exposed to a tougher side and the idea that males should not cry, this really opened up a new side for me. I've been able to be vulnerable to my athletes. And because of this, I know I've been, I have developed much greater bonds with them and have been able to help them reach greater levels because of it. That's what Coach Sands had to say. Here is... Uh, what uh, Matt Mitchell, who is uh, head coach at Grand Valley State, uh, had to say, I think it's natural when a college athlete ref reflects back on his college years, he first remembers the people, teammates, and coaches. I was fortunate to play with some awesome people, guys that I have stayed in touch with to this day, not just good athletes, but high character, caring, caring people. Now that I'm on the other side of it, I recognize that Coach Miller and his staff were responsible for bringing us all together and providing a platform for those experiences. I thank him for that, and I have lifelong friends because of Cornell football. I will also be forever grateful for the experiences I encountered while playing for Coach Miller. 
He and the assistant coaches at Cornell shaped me more than any other professor ever could. Coach Miller was an excellent leader. Leadership is influencing while engaging hearts and minds. My mind and heart were always engaged by coach. He was a very optimistic, grounded coach who cared about his players. This is how he engaged my heart. Coach was also very organized, and he had a plan at practice, meetings, and games that allowed us to be very competitive. He engaged my mind. Crazy to think about how much growth occurred during those years, and his football program was a catalyst for most of that. Forever indebted for him taking a kid out of Colorado and bringing him into his program. Thank you. Um, also have you mentioned earlier, Pete Cavanaugh, head coach at Mid Prairie High School. Coach Miller was more than just a coach. He was a second father to many of us. My most vivid memory is that he could tell a story and he loved to talk. Every story he had had a purpose and he kept the attention of a room full of guys. He was easy to play for because I truly cared about him and valued his praise. I also remember he was a gr he was great in-game adjustment guy. He drew something up at Monmouth on a third and long, and he wasn't even coaching offense. We ran it, and it worked. Tremendous coach and an even better man. And uh, lastly here, uh, we have Coach – or excuse me, Steve Hegel, uh, who used to be a coach at uh, Mac Valley. Uh, this is what he had to say. Coach Miller had a tremendous impact on me. It is obvious that he was a tremendous coach, but more importantly, a better man. He became more, much more than just a coach, but another father figure to so many of us that played for him. He instilled the confidence in me that I needed at the right time in order to succeed and reach my potential, not just as a football player, but as a young man. He taught all of us the importance of accountability and what true leadership looked like. Coach Miller instituted a family atmosphere that continues to this day. That sense of family went well beyond the football field, weight room, locker room, and meeting room. We became part of his family. Coach Miller interacted with our parents after games and was just as interested and concerned about us off the field as he was on. His program didn't just build football players or athletes, it built men. This is obvious with the excellent coaches at all levels that were once players of his that are now doing the same thing. Many personal things stand out with regards to Coach Miller. A few of them follow. Uh, my senior year, I broke my hand in the second game of the season at Beloit with just a few minutes to go after a, a long trip home. Coach was in the ER room. I was devastated and feared my playing career was over. He stuck with me, provided all the support I needed, and gave me the opportunities to get back on the field and play as soon as possible, even while casted up. Another family aspect involves Coach Miller's own mom. Coach's mom came to the majority of our games, knew our names, and interacted with us. She used to wear purple and white striped socks to every game that I just loved. She promised that when Coach retired, I would get those socks. She kept her promise, and I have those socks today with all, with all of the other Ram memorabilia. <clears throat> the final item that went well beyond the football field that really stands out for me. In 2006, 10 years after I graduated and played for coach, when coach and Ruth found out that we were in the NICU with my, my newborn premature daughter, coach and Ruth were one of those first people to reach out to us. We had just come off a rough night and we didn't know if our daughter Maya was going to make it. Coach and Ruth visited, brought gifts, 
and offered a tremendous amount of emotional support. That meant so much to my wife and I. I am forever grateful for everything Coach has done for me. Looking back, my decision to go to Cornell was everything that has given to me given to me was the best decision I have ever made. And coach Miller was a catalyst for that. So those are a few things that last one was a little tough to get through. I won't, won't uh, lie, uh, but uh, some pretty special moments there coach and very honored to be able to share those with you. Well, I appreciate it. Those are very nice, nice words. And, and uh, you know, for me, it was just uh, living your life. This is life and this is what you do. And uh, a lot of times when you think you're not doing anything special, you're just doing what should be done. It ends up being something special that, uh, you know, should be done. So thank you. I appreciate those. They, that means a lot to me because those are guys in all different kind of uh, parts of the world today. And uh, they were all special, obviously, as, you know, you can say that about almost everybody that you come in contact within your program. So that means a lot to hear those nice words. Well, I think it goes back to something that you touched on before we we got to those stories is you don't know how impactful something that you feel can be just a really insignificant moment has on that other person that receives that. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, especially that, uh, you know, the last email really kind of shared uh, and emphasized that yeah. Well, think back to your own uh, career growing up and different people that have impacted you. There are probably things both in a positive and negative way that have guided you in some direction. I mean, I've been told by a lot of people that I can't do that or I shouldn't do that. And if I'm young and impressionable, that has a big impression on a big impact on me. So you tell some young person they can't do something. A few of them will take it as a challenge and rise above it. A lot of them will say, wow, you know, maybe I can't do that and maybe I shouldn't do that. And so you just have to be real careful about how you approach anything like that and the impact that it's going to have on people. And um, that's just, you know, that's a real important part of it as well. Well, and there, there is a, a little bit, Tim and I were talking about this before you jumped on here. There is, you know, a strange connection between all three of us that Tim and I never even realized we had prior to even becoming friends was the fact that your wife was my sixth grade uh, elementary teacher and at, at Lincoln high school or Lincoln El or Lincoln middle elementary school, it would have been at that point. But uh, you know, I remember, and even what drew me to want to getting to get into teaching was actually someone like uh, Mrs. Miller, who was, you know, my sixth grade teacher who was a very compassionate, showed great empathy towards her student and never made her students, uh, you know, feel silly for asking questions or anything that, you know, may, may have been a, a silly question at the time. But uh, I just remember her being a really, really caring teacher that just always took time for her students and, uh, you know, just had a tremendous impact on me later on when I was trying to get into education. To, and, and when I look back on teachers who had an impactful uh, moment in my life, she was one of those teachers that I remembered, even as someone who was in his mid 30s going back to, to finish his teaching license and had his own family. So, you know, I, I just, uh, um, you know, in, in a strange way, your family had a connection on my family. Well, I know she's a tremendous teacher and she taught for 20 some years. 
And I know she had an impact at Cornell because uh, part of the thing we did at Cornell was to have some kids out to uh, our place for dinner on Thursday nights. And she probably fixed a thousand lasagnas through her career <laughs> for people to eat. And it got to be ridiculous. Uh, Very good. Guys would have a contest as to who was going to eat the most pizza <laughs> in one night, which led to a lot of serious stomach aches, I think, before the nights ended. But she was a real partner for me. And I know she had that impact on uh, her students at, at uh, well, it was Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln. Uh, at one time and then North Theater. And, and then she got out of that and got into uh, working as our alumni director at Cornell. But her impact as a teacher, I've heard that from a lot of other students, Dwayne, you know, through the years that she's run into in a supermarket or run into uptown someplace or uh, our paths have crossed in some way. So yeah, uh, she probably shaped me. And uh, developed a lot of the qualities in me uh, that needed a little shaping up. Yeah. Well, Coach, um, I had Dwayne read those because when I was um, uh, <laughs> when I was reading them, uh, I could I couldn't get through them. Uh, well, Tim, I understand. I appreciate what you're saying. I'll just say this. My son, who, you know, played for us at Cornell as well, uh, he used to laugh all the time because I would event inevitably at a, at a team banquet or at an important point, when I was making a point, I would get uh, pretty emotional pretty easily. And a lot of times I can remember at either dinners or, or banquets or, you know, certain meetings that it was hard to get through stuff. And I think uh, Brent's comment uh, a couple different times here and in on the line to that uh, Facebook page po uh, post on our team, team uh, of 92, you know, was that a lot of things I did were kind of, you know, maybe – off the wall or unexpected and uh, you didn't know how things were going to come out. And I did, I couldn't help that. I mean, I didn't want to break down. I didn't want to interrupt my, what I was saying. It was important to the person I was speaking of to do it in the right way. But the fact is it just kind of happened. Well, I think that was a, a, a vulnerability that I think is not a bad thing for people to understand. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just part of being uh, a human and part of being a strong person, really, to to uh, demonstrate that uh, feelings can run really deep. And I think when people recognize and understand that, and again, it comes back to the understanding that when they know you're doing this out of your love for them, that's the greatest bonding uh agent and that's the greatest motivator that's the greatest unifier uh that there can be and it's not wrong to show that and so uh, he would chuckle i know we had our 50th anniversary a few years ago out in uh wyoming and i was supposed to say something after each of the grandkids had read something and the kids had said something and he just started laughing because he says that there's no way you're going to get three sentences of this. So we might as well go ahead and have dessert. Get over. Amen to that. And he was probably right, you know. 
But I think you touched on it there, Coach, when you <laughs> when I, when you talked about how when you care deeply about something and and you put a lot of work into something. And uh, I never understood that until I, w- I became a coach. That uh, how emotional you become over over things that maybe others uh, may feel are, are insignificant. Uh, but uh, when when you care deeply, it's okay to express that to to your team and to your players because uh, ultimately uh, they need to see that. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And and so I, even if I tried to hide it, I couldn't because uh, it would just you know it just kind of come out at the moment. Well, I, I think the, the the bottom line here for us today, Coach, with you is that. You know, to being a servant leader starts with that saying of, you know, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. And so when you establish relationships through connection and caring and communication and putting your players' interests first, uh, you really set the ground groundwork for getting those to do things um, many thought they were incapable of doing, i.e. go undefeated as a 92 championship team or win a conference championship um, when no one thinks that you can. And so uh, we are better today because of the time you – uh, you invested with us, and I, I can't thank you enough. And and of all the people at Cornell and and Carol and Morningside and um, you know everyone that you've impacted, I know is going to be anxious to hear your thoughts today. So uh, thanks to you and all that you've done you know, throughout your life, without even knowing uh, you are a, a indeed a special human being. And I love you very much, and I'm proud to call you a mentor. Well, thanks, hey, Coach. It's been a pleasure to be on here with you guys because, you know, you always learn from everybody around you. I guess that's one of the signs of a good leader as well, be willing to learn. And, and these podcasts you guys are doing are tremendous. I must say, I've enjoyed every one that I've listened to. So maybe not this one quite so much as the previous <laughs> one, but uh, uh, it was fun being on with you. And uh, All right. Thanks again, Coach. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into the podcast today. We are honored that you chose to spend your time with us. If you like the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on any platform where you find your favorite podcasts. Let's keep chasing life, leadership, and greatness in all that we do. Have a great rest of your day. Mm-hmm.